Hi, I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. And you're listening to For Future Reference, a podcast from the Institute for the Future. In every episode of For Future Reference, we talk with scientists and engineers whose forward-thinking research has the potential to transform our lives over the coming decade. Today on For Future Reference, we talk to Murray Robinson. Murray is a molecular biologist, and for the past several decades, he's been creating tools for interpreting the functions of genes. As more people get their genome sequenced, people like Murray are able to tease what genes actually mean. Murray researches the genetics of cancer, but he also pursues another passion, something he calls recreational genetics. Some of Murray's research has a personal side as well. So the way we always start this podcast is just give us your name and tell us what you do. My name is Murray Robinson, and I'm a molecular biologist, and I'm studying the uh, edges of genomics and where trying to understand uh, how our genes work, uh, uh, how they work in our health, uh, how they work recreationally, um, how they influence who we are. And Murray, you've been doing this for a long time now. I've, I've known you personally for a long time, and, and uh, your work has gone down many fascinating paths. What is it lately that you're working on that, that's really fascinating to you? Yeah, so I've been at this molecular biology work for about 25 years, and I started out working uh, trying to understand how genes worked uh, in, in a world where we didn't know how many genes there were, and we just had a few, and we would study one gene at a one time, we used to joke it's uh, one one gene, one PhD thesis. <laughs> uh, and back uh, back uh, a few decades ago, we were really uh, interested in trying to learn uh, how genes functioned. And one of the tools that we used back then was to uh, take a gene from one context and put it in another context. And um, we did a, a, a lot of work this way. And, and one of the um, important but sort of unusual experiments we did is that we took the gene that makes fireflies glow, a gene called luciferase, and we introduced it into a mouse uh, and made made glowing mice. So so this is some and it was teaches us a lot about genes and that, that in sort of a dramatic way that genes um, can function in many, many different contexts, and whether it's a, a mouse or a fly, um, a, a, a lightning bug, they, uh, they all work just fine. Um, so that was one era um, where we really were getting in and trying to, to understand how genes work. And one of the remarkable things that's happened uh, in our lifetimes is that um, we long since, about 10 years after the, the, the mouse work, uh, the field had um, discovered uh, and finished the sequencing of the entire human genome. And so instead of having a few genes here and a few genes there that we studied, we now had an opportunity to study all of the genes. Um, and uh, we initially thought there were maybe 150,000. We actually think there are many fewer now, and we're we were there are about twenty thousand or so genes, which surprised many of us at how how few there were. Um, and so that that work 
really opened up a lot, and it's really broken open the study of human health. And so many of us, uh, in, in my job mostly, I've been have been working on cancer for about uh, about 20 years. And cancer is a disease where your own genes go rogue and sort of turn on you and then and, uh, enable the cells in your own body to, to grow in an uncontrolled fashion. So it's also all about the genes. So that's another period that, that we focused on to try to understand what happens when gene go, genes go awry. And from that information, can we both diagnose and treat uh, diseases like cancer? Um, now, there was a lot of hoopla around the first genome and the, the, the discerning and the sequencing of the first genome. But there was sort of a problem in the first genome, and that was that having one genome doesn't really help us that much. Um, it, it, help, it, it gives us the parts list, but it doesn't tell us uh, about another very important thing, and that is that all of us, uh, all of us in the room and all of us listening are more than 99 0.9% identical at the gene level. So most of our genes, most of the information in our genes is, is just the same. Um, but it's that small, you know, less than 0.1% of our genomes that contributes to all of the amazing variation that we see in humans around us. Uh, and so just having one genome, uh, in this case, the, the genomics pioneer Craig Venture's genome, uh, was the first one done, we uh, we really need to have more. And that's where just recently um, th this amazing technology has dropped the cost of, of getting a genome uh, sequence from, uh, you know, a billion dollars or so. The first one was, depending on how you count for it, that or more, um, to now any of us can call call someone up and get our genome sequence for $1,000. And that's changed everything. What's the technology? So uh, what's, what really drove that were several different iterations of what we would call sequencing technology, sort of like uh, uh, the chip, but in a physical way, really, really shrinking uh, the amount of material and the amount of liquid and, and the amount of reagents needed to complete the sequencing, uh, and then a bunch of really sort of miniaturization of, uh, of the system uh, and a lot of automation over time um, uh, has really just had this amazing breakthrough. Um, and that happened, uh, it's really come down the last, just the last couple of years, and that's changed everything. And, Mark, that's what I'm working on now is now I'm sort of saying, okay, now that we have thousands and hopefully we'll have millions of genomes soon, now we're on a new uh, uh, quest to really better understand how genomes contribute uh, to disease, health, and and lots of other uh, uh, you know traits. So is this kind of where where big data comes in? You have like a much larger sample size of uh, sequenced uh, genomes to compare with each other and then see how they express themselves in different people. Exactly, exactly. So now people are are doing lots and lots and lots of people, and now you have a big data. Now you can link. You know, do I am I a morning person or I'm am I an evening person? And you can you know do a survey and and then people can answer that and then you can now begin with a huge amount of data. You can now begin to link that to genes that might be linked uh, associated with that. Pinpoint those genes 
And then the next time someone gets sequenced, you say, oh, you have, you know, version A versus version C in this, uh, at this position. You know, most of the people that have that are morning people. And so, you know, that gives you that information. But it's, that's right. It's a big data mathematical exercise um, that we imperfectly understand now. And many of us are working on that part. So when you get your your genome sequence, do you just get like this uh, 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 a file sent to you that has the amino acid pairs? And then what is actually a, a genome look like? That's something that we're all uh, learning about because your your genome uh, is is DNA. It's nucleic acid um, okay. it, that gets turned into the amino acids, but it's the the DNA is the nucleic acid, and you have each of us has two billion uh, different bits of information. And those bits of information are um, the four, what we would call the nucleotides, mm-hmm. the A, the C, the T, and the G. And they uh, will run in this code, it's written in a language we don't really understand, for two billion bases. So you can, in fact, request that information. And you'll get back these enormous uh, you know, terabyte files that have ACCTG, ACCT, TTT, on and on and on for two billion um, for two billion uh, iterations, mm-hmm. um, and that's what we're now all working on. Is okay now you get that. Okay, well, what the heck does that mean? And I think when I had my genome sequenced uh, last year, I think the most remarkable uh, people asked me, you know, what what was the most you know, striking thing you learned about getting your genome sequence, and and the answer is how little we can learn from getting our genome sequence. <laughs> so, um, because we don't understand it yet, right? And and yet there are clues um, that are telling us that there are going to be really interesting things in our genome. So that's the phase we're at right now. We've got the sequence. We've got the technology. Any of you can get your genome read. And now we're into this next phase of interpretation. Okay, what does it all mean? Murray, I, I, you've done a really interesting project um, over the last few years that I was hoping you could talk about um, that, that really makes a lot of the science tangible um, for everyday people, and that's the, the Face Topo project. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. So um, among the many things that are found in the genome, uh, we know – um, that the shape, uh, size, and dimensions of your face are highly genetically determined. Think about twins and triplets. We can have a hard time telling them apart. We can all recognize family resemblances. We can sort of guess at where someone is in the world. It's much harder these days that we all get mixed, but you can guess at where someone is in the world um, from, from just looking at them. Uh, and we also know that faces are highly genetically complex. Um, meaning that each of us, uh, you know, has subtle, slight differences uh, in their faces. And so I was really interested in, um, in from what I sort of refer to as this recreational genomics aspect, the, the social <laughs> That's aspect. That's a great phrase. Could you? <laughs> recreational. Yeah, right. Because most of what we do, and, and honestly most of what I'm doing, is, is the really deadly serious stuff like disease diagnosis and treatment. Um, and I think appropriately, most of us are focused on that right now. But I think that this other recreational genomics um, is going to be valuable. I think it's going to be helpful, and I think it's going to be fun. So, so this recreational genomics idea of of the social aspect of of understanding the relationships from faces 
is something that I was very interested in from a, a DNA point of view. Could you take a piece of chewing gum on the ground or could you get your genome sequenced? And from that information, look yourself up on a database and, for instance, find all your face twins. People have guessed that we might have a dozen face twins out there. Um, if you're a celebrity, celebrities have lots of celebrity lookalikes because their faces are ubiquitous and, and everyone compares faces against them. But most of us um, you know, don't have that kind of uh, uh, exposure um, uh, to do that. And, so, uh, and yet it's sort of something that's interesting to us. So you think that there's 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 about a dozen people out there who might look pretty much exactly like me. We that's what people are estimating from, wow. from available information. Amazing. Yeah. The doppelgangers. Yeah. Yeah, and we all know, right? We all hear about them and and know about the doppelgangers and uh, now with the with the internet a couple of examples are coming up. Mm-hmm. There's a great um Montreal artist who by word of mouth photographs doppelgangers. Um a really cool project. Um, but we kind of want to sort of, you know, make it a social a social site. Um, and so a couple of, of aspects of that. So I've always been very DNA-centric based on my background. Um, but uh, my wife, Alberta, said, hey, wait a minute. If, if faces are really genetic um, and you have the face information, why don't you turn it around and, and do you need the DNA? And can you just get enough faces and then the face – the quantify the face information and then put that into a database. And so um, with that uh, sort of simplifier, uh, we've launched into it and are now working on uh, building um, the ability from a cell phone to, to measure a face. Um, uh, and then from a user directed and a user controlled point of view, um, you can, you can search your face information for either general information or even, even look for specific people who might look like you. Um, I do want to point out that uh, any of us who are on on Google and Facebook, uh, those organizations already have our faces, as we often get tagged in photos, but we don't have access to it. Um, and and they also collect it in a different way. They do recognition versus measurement. Um, but uh, we're kind of excited about the project, and we ultimately think that we'll be able to turn that around because there are so many genes involved in your face, we think there's a possibility that actually now by reading a face, you might be able to read in uh, health information um, because those same genes, uh, there's many examples where they're known to be involved in the same function. And so this is actually, Facetopo is an app that people can download onto their smartphone just by going to the the, uh, iTunes Store or or Google Play, I imagine. That's right. That's right. We've 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 just begun this experiment. This is a, a, a citizen science project, um, and we've just loaded uh, the early versions of Face Topo um, onto the store, so you can just download them and, and contribute your face. Um, this is an early project, so uh, we are um, we don't know what we're going to find yet. Um, but some of the early data we're collecting uh, it looks really intriguing, so we're pretty excited. And we need we need people to contribute to the project. To uh, it's a chicken and egg thing, right? Until we get a lot of faces, we don't know how good it's going. Sure. So we'll definitely provide links in the show notes so that people can download Face Topo and try it themselves. Oh, fantastic! There, there was one other other thing that uh, I I would like to talk to you about. You were recently featured in a book uh, by Pagan Kennedy, and it. Uh, 
had to do with your kind of quest to learn about your brother's uh, genetic syndrome. That's right. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So um, I grew up in a family with uh, five kids, and one of my brothers, uh, my roommate, um, shared a bedroom with him, um, was always a little bit different. He, we would, we called it retarded back then. Now we call it de- developmental disability. Um, uh, but he was always an interesting and gregarious and unusual uh, character, um, and uh, a lot of fun, a lot of frustra- uh, a lot of frustration, and a very amusing uh, guy to grow up with. Um, when he was in his mid thirties, um, and we never knew what what caused his particular phenotype. When he was in his mid thirties, uh, a researcher named Ann Smith um, discovered a syndrome. Um, that uh, that he had, and it was a syndrome that they called Smith-McGainis syndrome. Uh, and and what was interesting about the syndrome is that it actually they had a single gene um, got changed uh, spontaneously in my brother that led to all of his his crazy uh, uh, phenotypes and behavior, his gregariousness. He would be sleeping the day. He would wake up at night. Uh, he was fascinated with electronics, um, and um, we all knew this to be my brother, and we were shocked to read when the syndrome was characterized that these features, including, for instance, a fascination with electronics, were um, diagnostic of the syndrome. Incredible. Uh, and clearly was all due to this single uh, gene change. So that was pretty amazing and the to to discover that and now I as a molecular biologist said oh well let me learn all about this gene this gene called RAI1 um and um I just went and started looking up papers on it and there weren't any because people had no idea the gene had a name but it didn't no one knew what it did so um I developed and spent, I was working on a lot of these tools, so I spent a lot of time with it. And and we now have a hypothesis, a strong hypothesis for what the gene does. Uh, and what's unusual is that there are um, uh, medicines that are being tested now uh, for other indications, in fact, uh, for cancer indications. Um, so anti-cancer drugs uh, have an impact on the biology of this gene and there are a lot of people now who are interested in saying, oh, should we or can we or does it make sense to maybe alter some of these, these uh, uh, traits that my brother has by, uh, by altering a pathway with some of these drugs. So it's a pretty crazy story, and it tells us a couple things, that uh, genes have a big influence on who we are and, and how we act, uh, that we still have a lot of, uh, to learn about uh, how genes work. It brings up some real ethical questions about, you know, my brother's a pretty interesting guy. Do we want to try to fix his his uh, nocturnal habits with drugs, or should we, you know, leave him well alone? Right. Um, and last, uh, it to me the most striking is here is a syndrome that's due to a single gene change, and that single gene change uh, renders. Uh, those individuals uh, uh, with a fascination for electronics. They're interested in switches and light bulbs. Um, you know, we would get my brother when he was growing up anything with batteries or lights. Um, 
And he was always drawn to that and still is today. That is amazing. And so I wonder, you know, you know, people who are into electronics or people are, you know, or all the computer IT people, do they have variations in, in this gene that sort of mm-hmm. impacts their interest in the, uh, in these kind of culturally adapted uh, phenotypes? Amazing. It's like a, it's like a geek gene or a maker gene or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Right, right. You know, and, and here's one example. I mean, I, I, I think that there probably are many uh, genes that influence behavior. And in and, and saying this, I think we all need to remember that there is lots of room for environment in all of these. I don't think that in any of these cases are we, you know, genetically predetermined. I think that these are just influencers on us. Um, but, we, uh, you know, I think it'd be really interesting to find that out. Yeah. There's one more example of that that I think gives us another sense of the breadth of the relationship between genes and behavior. And that one more example um, is a little bit better known. It's a, it's a syndrome called Williams syndrome, another rare syndrome that has a whole constellation of complex phenotypes. Um, but one of the dominant diagnostic phenotypes of these individuals is that they have a very outgoing personality. Uh, and on tests, they score slightly better than average on cocktail language skills, whereas in other parts, they actually also have developmental disability. Wow. Um, but they are these outgoing, gregarious people, again, all to due to uh, simple genetic syndrome. So, again, we know all those people, too, the sort of outgoing, you know, the, sales, the salesman type people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot to learn about uh, the relationships between genes and, and, and our, our myriad traits as humans. That's fantastic. Murray, this has been so much fun talking to you and, and finding out about the, the work that you're doing and and the interests that you have. Uh, and also how personal it is, really. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely been a personal journey for me. That's great. Well, Murray, thank you so much. Thanks for, for joining us. Taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Uh, I really enjoyed it. You know, Mark, this term that he used, recreational genetics, was really, I don't know, it really struck a chord with me because I think that it's something that really, you know, resonates probably with people. You know, people think about genetics um, as this very complicated thing, which it, which it is, um, but, you know, there, there are other applications that, that I think can spark the imagination if people learn about them. I think so, and I think it also kind of hints at the fact that the the price of genetics research is starting to drop. Yeah, so that you can actually do things that might be recreational genetics yeah. as opposed to making sure that every last penny is spent on, you know, very serious and, of course, worthwhile uh, research and applications. Right. And it's just great having, you know, citizen science be applied to something that was once as lofty as genetic engineering and genomics and things like that. Now that everyone can participate in it, makes it a little less abstract and something that you can kind of grab onto, which I think is important and something that's, like, very complex. Yeah, even when he's talking about um, the price of being able to um, sequence a genome just dropping tremendously, it's almost like the the Moore's Law of Biology or something. Right. And and as it gets cheaper, it becomes more useful. That That whole idea of having a database of everyone's genome so that you can, like, really shake out what it is that genes, how they express themselves, I think, points to a, a really exciting future. Yeah, it's about finding our differences and celebrating those differences, really. 
Thanks for listening to For Future Reference. I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. For more information about Institute for the Future and to subscribe to the For Future Reference podcast, visit iftf.org. For Future Reference is underwritten by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation with production support from Parker Yesco and BMP Audio. Greg Fleischett composed the music.